Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Investment Management LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. ARK and Public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, ARK disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK and investors should determine for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC and or show guests and are not endorsements by ARC of any company or security or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. ARC assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. ARC and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party. Welcome to episode 24 of The Brainstorm. We're talking about one of the most eventful weekends of the year, potentially changing the uh, entirety of the future of the human race. I'm going to, is that, is that too much hyperbole? I don't think so. I think that's fair to say. We're talking about open AI and SpaceX. Uh, Obviously we'll dive into open AI. Brett, maybe if you want to just set the stage, we'll, we'll timestamp it because we're getting tweets live as, as we're talking now. So things may change. It's Monday, November 20th, uh, 3 PM. Yeah. So in a shocking announcement, the, board of the nonprofit that controls OpenAI announced that they were firing um, Sam Altman, the CEO, uh, and cited um, some lack of candidness with the board. Uh, this was shocking because OpenAI has the, the highest velocity business momentum, you know, certainly across all of tech and maybe in tech history. I think, you know, they're reputed to be doing a billion dollars in revenue this year and They've said maybe five to ten billion dollars by next year. Uh, they've been embedded into Microsoft. They uh, launched GPT four. They just cut prices on GPT four by um, you know some three x. They they everybody is building on top of OpenAI stack. And so to suddenly destabilize the whole company seems insane given the momentum. And boy did it destabilize the company because the entire workforce seemed to revolt over the weekend. Uh, and now I think. 700 out of the 700 and something employees have threatened to quit unless Sam Altman is reinstated. Uh, And he seems to have been hired out with his co-founder to Microsoft directly uh, as of this taping. (laughs) Uh, So so I I think that sets the stage. We can talk about ramifications, but tell me if I've missed anything over the last hour. No, I think that covers it. The most recent tweet from Sam Altman is 
Uh, Satya and my top priority remains to ensure OpenAI continues to thrive. We are committed to fully providing continuity of operations to our partners and customers. The OpenAI slash Microsoft partnership makes this very doable. So as of now, seems like he's still team Microsoft, but uh, that is subject to change. But I feel like we should just get into the ramifications so far. There's been uh, some prodding from others. You know, you have Meta who's come out and said, you know, if you want to work for a company that believes AI is actually going to be good for humanity and open source in a true open way, uh, you know, they're, they're willing to hire you. You have different takes, I think. It would be interesting to dive in where this leaves Anthropic. Um, Stratechery said that they actually thought this put Anthropic in a worse position. Um, but Brett, interested huh. in- Wait, well, maybe- can, can... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I think we should maybe start just to set the stage. One, I think the, the backstory here with Microsoft is interesting because they have invested upwards of, I think it's $10 billion. They own 49% of the company or will over time as I think part of the investment in OpenAI. Am I wrong on that? I think that is an important. Well, no, they, they own a profit share that then pays out over time and then their ownership falls out. Okay. Uh, so like part of, part of the, the root underlying issue here is OpenAI was a nonprofit uh, whose mission was to like develop artificial general intelligence for all humanity. And at some point they realized we need a lot of money to do this and getting money to a nonprofit is hard. You have to go around and like beg people. Uh, and so they created a profit making entity underneath that could then raise capital, promising a return to investors so that they, they could invest in billions of dollars of compute. And Microsoft participated in that profit making entity, uh, investing $10 billion with, and I'm not sure if this, the degree to which we know for certain, these are the terms, but it's on the order of they can only get $100 billion in profit out of the profit-making entity. But they did that in part just to get to sign as an exclusive partner to OpenAI's um, GPT products. And so then embedding those products in, in, in kind of Microsoft Office Suite is core to Microsoft's trajectory of growth going forward. So for Satya, who is a, a India or sorry, a, a cricket World Cup fan, this happened at the worst possible time because he was trying to watch, you know, India versus Australia in the Cricket World Cup, and instead he was receiving a call from probably from Sam Altman being like, "I've been fired," and it's very surprising, and Satya being like, "This is terrible and very surprising." Uh, and so my interpretation of the current status of what has happened is one: the entire workforce in OpenAI has been shaken up. All of the startup ecosystem that was building on top of OpenAI is suddenly having to say, well, we need to like at least develop to OpenAI plus Anthropic plus maybe Cohere, you know, other large language model API providers, because like it's pretty clear that the pace at which things are being developed on OpenAI's platform is going to slow down. Sam and Sam Altman and team, some of which some have parachuted over to Microsoft to continue building on top of the work they've already done. They're just going to do it under Microsoft's corporate umbrella now, and maybe they retain some option to spin themselves out as a profitable entity. But like you can imagine, there was GPT-5 in the works for OpenAI. Maybe that gets delivered, maybe it doesn't. But from where whatever that point is, now Microsoft is going to try to be like, okay, we're going to boost away from here, and then OpenAI will kind of like fall apart like a, a 
booster stage on a rocket uh, and just disintegrate back to Earth. Uh, and and I think it, it shakes up both the talent landscape and the kind of like who is our stable development partner landscape sufficient to just level the playing field somewhat. Because even transitioning to Microsoft, there's a whole set of like even just transitioning from Google to Office 365 is going to take them like a month and a half. Well, a month and a half in AI space is like a six months in normal tech space. So like the kind of shake up, the slowdown, the, the, all of the drama has to kind of slow down OpenAI's momentum to some degree. Uh, and that just gives kind of like competitive um, introductions to, to other potential solutions that are out there. Uh, and I think that you're likely to have like enterprises are like, fine, this isn't Microsoft. This is perfect. We'll continue spending on Microsoft enterprises, like large enterprises. This is what they want. They just want a reliable, you know, big incumbent partner. Um, but the startup landscape, I think is really going to have to think about whether or not they're developing to open AI now, because that's kind of like developing to probably a tech platform that is going to stop shipping. Uh, and, and so then I think. From that perspective, it opens up the playing field to Anthropic and XAI and and all of these other um, contenders for the AI crowd. Yeah, and then one other nuance I think that we did leave out is the fact that uh, Altman may have been fundraising for a hardware component, the chip side of it, um, which. Yeah, I don't know. That that was a heavy eye roll there, Brett. But <laughs> well, I, I, I think you're, no, you're yes. I think that there the the way in which there is still an untold story as to what it was that the OpenAI board saw that caused them to act so aggressively and and suddenly to oust him. It doesn't really make sense as it's being reported today. And it, so Emmett Shear was brought in as interim CEO for OpenAI. He was previously the Twitch CEO, uh, and he, in his introductory note, he said that um, kind of like, or indicated that the board at OpenAI had seen something that was um, beyond just uh, you're shipping uh, AI too quickly. Uh, as, as in the concern is the board, which has an interest in age in artificial general intelligence for all humanity, had was uncomfortable with the fact that OpenAI was delivering these amazing products because, you know, maybe it would, they would be too powerful. Um, but he seemed to indicate it was something else. And it could be um, that, you know, Sam Altman had recognized that, wow, this is like, you know, literally a historical company that's being built and it's within an awkward corporate architecture. If I can fundraise to a separate entity, uh, then I can essentially extract value out of it into a profit-making entity that is outside the purview of the nonprofit. And then if he was not fully disclosed, if he didn't, if they asked him, he was like, oh, it's no big deal. It's no conflict at all. Uh, then that could be a concern that the board has. Not that they, not that um, kind of with what's happening in OpenAI itself, but the degree to which Sam Altman was trying to navigate around essentially the mission of the controlling entity of the board and, and take power for you know, himself. Um, but, in, and then the, the final, the real people who got, you know, screwed here are the employees in open AI who, uh, were up to make a lot of money on selling like a new round of capital into the profit making entity under the nonprofit. Uh, and that is probably just totally in shambles. Now I doubt that comes off.
I think one of the more interesting details we haven't got, there are a ton of details, obviously, and there's so much information flying around, but it's the fact that it was one of the other co-founders that potentially raised the alarm bells about what Sam was doing to the board. And then once the you know news got out and the board made their decision, he then, it seems, backtracked and then signed the letter that all of the employees wrote saying, he too would leave the company if Sam and, you know, team weren't brought back on, which is just, you know, what exactly did he see and what did he bring to the board? I think is the missing link that would tie this full story together because there are so many moving pieces that we still don't really know why this was set in motion. That's what is so interesting, at least to me, you have like, to your point, Brett, you have this company is a historical company. No company has ever grown this fast in terms of users or adoption. And it seems that it may have just blown up overnight and we don't even know the reason why. Right. Or, hey, or just how ridiculous, don't. right. And or just don't. how ridiculous it is for the concept to be that uh, AGI is going to be controlled by this for Per, independent directors and that's going to save everyone from like the harms of this it's like you you have people tweeting and making these moves obviously we don't have full information but it seems like you know no one there realized the outcome of their actions to the degree that they have unfolded um is it is it a, is this the biggest advertisement for open source a, ai or do you think that it's still you know, needs to be controlled in a tight way for safety reasons. Well, I, I've always believed that kind of like the, the way in which an open source AI foundation, like as in a foundation level that is open source in some way is, is going to be the safest possible outcome and kind of the regulatory efforts that have been put on, I think actually net reduce our safety so far because they make it less likely that open source development happens and more likely that kind of like essentially the keys to the AI kingdom are in a handful of kind of like companies that are incentivized to disclose as little as possible about what they're doing to, to kind of like kneecap competitors that are trying to develop, you know, alternative products. Uh, and so I, I think it's without a doubt that both in terms of like vetting and and kind of understanding the capabilities in play and direction of travel uh a world with uh really strong robust open source models is a safer and probably better world and i think in terms of like productization and capitalization um there's a lot of having like it it's it's hard to do open source um um in in a really really tight iteration loop you know like look at look at bitcoin which is an amazing open source project uh, and even Ethereum to some degree, um, and also really critical infrastructure, kind of nobody would argue that the, the pace of Bitcoin development is mind-blazing. In fact, it's, it's quite slow uh, and, and, and intentionally so. I mean, I think that's, that's a design feature for like a monetary alternative. Uh, and I think that um, AI space is moving so quickly, it's, you know, it seems uh, likely that kind of like commercialization efforts that are in kind of like entities that are explicitly profit making are, are, are likely to move um, kind of more quickly with the wrinkle that Meta, you know, formerly Facebook is investing in open source models aggressively and 
and has their own monetization strategy on top of that, but but thinks that they can kind of like provide uh, infrastructure to the world that they'll take advantage of as well. What do you think this means for the foundation model thesis? And maybe you can set that up because sure. does this change where the value will accrue in the tech stack? Like you're talking about Facebook building on top of the foundation model, but the open source layer is going to be potentially that foundation model if this pushes everything in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I think, or I think just to, to lay it out, we think that um, AI software is going to deliver a four to five times productivity boost to knowledge workers globally by 2030, meaning that like, um, and, and, and on that basis, you can come to a conclusion that there's going to be around $14 trillion spent on AI software. You do some further math and you're like, well, that's like a 90 to $100 trillion market cap opportunity for AI software right there. And then we have a breakdown of how much does that go, how much goes to like Anthropic or OpenAI or some kind of foundation model provider, and then how much to vertical specific software plays within that. And so our rough guess was, hey, 25% of that is to foundation model providers. Those are probably lower margin opportunities, but then there's only a few of them that survive. And I think it's still likely in my view that you have like a big, broad open source one that services a lot of companies and then you know, maybe two like other foundation model providers that are that are closed and kind of offer, you know, differentiated performance or integration offerings and, and kind of uh, kind of build off of there. Does this shift the playing field towards one or the other? It probably does just because OpenAI has just like on a performance basis, such a lead uh, relative to the other offerings. And so you could have imagined a scenario where they're kind of running away with the ball and kind of accruing all the data and all the profits and all the data and all the profits. And so they become a very strong kind of like, think of it like Apple versus Android. They become the thing that extracts all of the profits out of the, out of the ecosystem. And then Android, you know, just provides infrastructure to everybody, but there's not a lot of kind of profit directly in Android. And similar mm -hmm. to like, if you think about Android's value to Google, it's distribution uh, and, and, and to, to basically serving as like Google search's default front end, uh, like Meta's play is to provide like that broad open source kind of substrate and that then provides distribution or, or kind of the tools that build out Meta's existing portfolio of apps and platforms and can monetize indirectly via ad advertising or, um, you know, transaction facilitation. So I think there, there's a lot. So I don't, I think this this maybe like makes open source like likely to have a bigger footprint just because hey the whole playing field's been shaken up and kind of the leader is going to fall apart and so then there's going to be a lot of jockeying between the commercial models and maybe some pricing competition um, but we'll see. All right, so then Nick, do you have? I was going to do. I, have, I just here. yeah. Well, I have one, one more right. question just in terms of thinking about Microsoft's potential play here. Do you think it's at all possible that they just come in? and gobble up the whole company, right? Like they're going out, they've taken some very important people, Sam, the other co-founder, um, you know, it seems like they'll be able to steal away employees, right? Like the employees are rebelling at this point. Microsoft has a vested interest in open AI. What is stopping them from coming in and saying, we're just gonna, you know, we're gonna take care of this. We're gonna, you know, put the drama behind us. This is all going behind the scenes now. And we'll run it as you know a subsidy of Microsoft. It's yeah, already they couldn't, they couldn't yeah they go couldn't, ahead. They couldn't buy the nonprofit 
because the okay. nonprofit that would that's against the nonprofit's mission, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're actually Microsoft effectively is trying to do that. They're saying we're going to take all the talent, and there's a certain set of agreements we have at the OpenAI uh, that we are going to like take where OpenAI developed to all the talent building on top of that. And then meanwhile, it's basically going to be like, and we're going to fork development into Microsoft for profit off of whatever OpenAI has done. And then we'll leave kind of like that wilting husk of, a, of an entity behind. Uh, and so there's not, if, you know, 700 out of 750 or whatever employees are going to leave, like, what do you need the new CEO for who's going to do a 30-day review of what happened? And it's just like a... All right, later, you know, you, yeah. you, you have all of the lifeblood and you have access to at least the kind of like the, the knowledge of the development pathway and access to the underlying models and checkpoints to the degree that the um, licensure sharing allows them to. So there's probably some lost work there, but I think that they've basically extracted a lot of value out of this, maybe even more so. Like I thought they were in real trouble on Sunday when kind of like, the open AI situation was going to fall apart. And I assumed Sam was going to raise money into a, a new entity and then Microsoft would get cut out. Uh, and instead, I don't know what they offered to Sam Altman as like, maybe it's like succession as CEO of Microsoft or something. Uh, but uh, they they had to, had to provide something that he felt like he was going to be free and clear to develop on and probably incentivize his talent to move over. So maybe it's like a, an ability to spin out kind of whatever entity he's in at his option or, or something like that. Um, we'll see. Yeah. All right. So as we, as we wrap this up, we're going to try something new. Brett, biggest takeaway from this, the one big takeaway, Nick, you're coming up next. Okay. <laughs> um, gosh, does corporate structure matter? And I, you know, you've seen this across I mean, certainly like in the FTX case where there was no corporate structure to speak of, uh, that really allowed that entity to dissolve so spectacularly. And here, the, 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 the couching of kind of like the um, profit-making entity under this nonprofit that really had a different responsibility than a traditional board would uh, ultimately eviscerated the company. Uh, and I, I think the the it really actually shows why kind of the super voting shares that mark zuckerberg has are so important why kind of having giving founders the ability to like shift the entity to where they need to go um in a really rapid tech moving landscape is is more vital and important than ever uh and that and also that like profit motive there's lots of problems with profit motive but it's actually a very clean score sheet. Whereas if you have somebody who um, changes the way they're doing something because they feel queasy about it or because it, it because there's like some subjective measure where they're going to be unpopular, uh, then it results in really bizarre behavior and, and outcomes that aren't stable platforms on top of which to build new things. Yeah, there's definitely some Atlas Shrugged vibes occurring over the weekend. Uh, Nick, your big takeaway. Uh, I will summarize it in one sentence. Risk happens fast. If you had told me <laughs> in the beginning of the year that Sam Altman would be out at OpenAI and they would, you know, the, their future would be in jeopardy and that Mark Zuckerberg of all people in Meta are leading the open source movement after being the notorious gatekeeper 
of advertising for the past you know decade plus i would have told you you know you're crazy and that can't happen and it just happened in three days time and seemingly overnight you know when when all of this went down so i would say risk happens fast you know keep an eye out always um, things may not be what they seem on the surface and then maybe i'll just go uh, a slant take here is get on x it's like if if you weren't if you weren't on x you probably didn't even know any of this was happening um you know really the amount of news that emerged and all of the angles everyone from open ai you know sending hearts to each other the nuances there um if you're not there i feel like you're not really getting getting the news as you should but we'll we'll leave that for another time moving on to humanity changing event number 2 was the starship launch so this was the second starship attempt from spacex and just a summary of what happened uh all rocket engines worked which was a step up from the first attempt there's the super heavy booster and you've got the starship on top uh they went up they split with a new technique called hot staging so the engines on the starship started as these were still burning and the booster broke off did a nice little flip then exploded uh it was <laughs> it was it was supposed to come down in a more controlled manner but it it didn't and then you have starship which continued on for about another 6 minutes all rocket engines working um and then it sounds like there was a self destruct command that was triggered for some reason and so you know you may read headlines out there saying this was a failure because the full goal was to land the boost the super heavy booster down in the water gently and then to have starship go all the way around earth and then splash down north of hawaii um but i think you know this was a tremendous success from spacex's point of view and from starship's development you know having all rocket engines work was tremendous having the hot staging separation work was the main goal and the fact that they demonstrated that and were able to collect data for you know 30 seconds after the separation before it exploded i think will make the next launch that much better and i think one of the things brett that you've mentioned and was written up this weekend as well actually by the person we had on last week eric berger is the fact that exploding rockets is good and if you and it's like this is the way that it should be done and if you're trying to go risk free you wind up going much slower and it winds up being infinitely more expensive and that's why you have you know nasa's rockets that cost billions of dollars um compared to what spacex gets to and having reusable rockets but Brett, I don't know if you want to expand on that or yeah, share your I mean, thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think the most, just from a high-level perspective, one, every rocket from every other company in the world that goes up doesn't come back down in one piece. Uh, so uh, the fact that SpaceX landed a rocket in 2015, uh, and here we are eight years later, and there's nobody else who has at least landed an orbital rocket is in some ways astounding, like shocking. You know, this is not a, this is, it's, it's like, Sam, you're a runner. When somebody runs a four minute mile, uh, then people realize it's possible. And so then they do it. Uh, but the, 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 it's a testament to 
SpaceX's business process that in order to land rockets, you have to risk looking like an idiot along the way. And uh, they're willing to take the reputational damage uh, that's required to actually increase their like velocity of improvement. Uh, and, and same here, it's like you can simulate, you could spend another year doing simulation to, to try to prevent kind of like the disaster quote unquote from happening. Uh, and, and, or you can launch as quickly as possible and then you collect the most robust data of what's going on with the system, which allows you to make the best engineering choices for the next rocket. And it allows you to um, kind of accelerate your rate of actual manufacturing production. Uh, you, you know, I think Elon mentioned they have three three boosters like in assembly right now, and they're going to launch again next month. Uh, and so, kind of, they'll get you know that many more kind of innovation turns, you know, before a marginal competitor even gets something on a launch pad. Right. Oh, that's the other piece. The launch pad held up. So that's like another big thing from the first launch. They really uh demolished the ground they they did a true scorched earth um but now the plate saved everything so they will be able to turn around and brett to your point i think it's a good one in that by the time someone else reuses a orbital rocket spacex is likely uh well on its way with starship being reusable in which case you know what good is your tiny little reusable rocket. Yeah, what what is, what is your estimate of the cost per uh, ton to orbit of Spar Starship versus, or what's the, the cost differential between Starship and, and the Falcon 9? So we think the initial, I, I'm sure that there will be progress. So, you know, I think you can get down to $200 per kilogram to orbit um, in a reasonable time frame, And then if you get to true reusability the way that elon's spoken about it and you're just kind of taking into account refueling um and the rest of the architecture is there and infrastructure is there then you know we think you could probably get it all the way down to the tens of dollars to or per kilogram to low earth orbit and what what is the falcon 9 today uh the falcon 9 today is roughly like fifteen hundred dollars if you're looking so I mean, if somebody, if if you, somebody from, gets... from what they're charging or yeah. what, what it actually costs them. Like well, we think that they're right. It, it, we, from the math that we've seen, we think SpaceX can actually refurbish the first stage of a Falcon nine for uh, like a million dollars uh, or less, just based on how quickly they can turn it. But they are still charging $60 million um, per launch. So like conceptually somebody getting to reusable on a small rocket if SpaceX has already crossed to like Starship reusable, they're still like a 10x behind in terms of cost per kilogram to orbit. Exactly, exactly. Um, any, any, oh, go ahead. I, I have one request and it's just that you tell the story around what SpaceX had to do to get this launch ready to go, specifically with seals and sonic booms. Can you oh, yeah. please yeah, yeah. let, let so people the, know? <laughs> everyone should watch the uh, Elon Lex Friedman podcast that they did recently. Elon describes that to get the approval from the wildlife services, they had to take a wild seal, strap it to a board, put put some headphones on it, and play sonic booms to see how it would impact the seal. 
And so he he posts the photo out there, so you can see this poor little seal just strapped <laughs> strapped to the board, uh, in for the wild ride of its life. Crazy. Ay-yi. I mean, yep. yeah, I don't know. Um, but we'll keep it consistent. Brett, key takeaway. I think this is another step towards becoming an inner. Actually, my key takeaway is we are going to see uh, a Cybertruck strapped to the top of a Starship doing like a launch into orbit sometime over the next couple of years. I think we're going to have a Cybertruck in space. That's real advertising. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, your key takeaway here. Um, that the photography of these launches is just incredible. I don't know who's putting these photos together, but from what I've seen, even the video footage is just tremendous. I mean, the fact that we're able to watch this in real time is just very cool with the fidelity that we get. But I think, I mean, the tech side is that I think it is insane that no one has been able to land another orbital rocket, as you mentioned, Brett. Like to me, I think the running analogy is is perfect. You know, the follow-on effect, once people know something can be accomplished, it's usually pretty fast. And the fact that this hasn't been accomplished by anyone else speaks to SpaceX's lead in this area. Yeah, I think that's the key takeaway for me is one, SpaceX is not complacent in any way. They're continuing to push at the risk frontier to get to the next level. Um, It's a matter of when, not if Starship works in my opinion. and the degree to which they are ahead of competition is is pretty astounding. Um, I think that's it on the official topics. I do want to just dive into this because I, for I, uh, for I did research this for a newsletter I was writing with a friend one time. So the four minute mile, there's wide debate around the Roger Bannister, and the claim is actually a lot of people were already running around and sub four minute miles, but his was the marketed one. And so it's like, there were already a lot of people in like doing this and around there, but he got the crowd, he got the, you know, endorsements. And so people started paying attention to it because it was uh, like noted down and a big deal. But if you look at the other results from around that time, it's like people were, it wasn't like he did it. And all of a sudden people started doing it. It's like, no, this was the, this was the trend and it was going there with or without him. So you're saying I, I, I like invented a, or quoted a false narrative that kind of him doing it <laughs> enabled people to do it. Well, it's a, it's a shared history that's believed. So I'll end on another thought slash question. Are we getting faster as humans or is sports technology uh, helping us break all of these milestones? Um, I think we still are getting faster, but technology, and this is a good question too, because it's like in running, people are okay with these super shoes, but swimming, it happened first and they banned them from competition. And so it's interesting to see why we've decided that some technology is okay and other technology isn't. Well, it's kind of like, are you interested in the time? Are you interested in the human performance relative to other human performance? As in kind of is, is, is it important to be like the, yeah, like 
to measure to measure what you're talking about, Nick, like are humans getting faster or to measure like is humans equipped with the right tools getting faster? Well, yeah, I guess I think of it as if you took the best athletes and runners from 60, 50 years ago and gave them everything runners have today, would they be equally as performative or no. are, you know, humans evolving to like become faster in each generation? I don't I think, think we're evolving. Oh, go ahead, Brett. You go first. Well, it, it's like, I think it's inextricable. Like shoes is one thing, but also there's diet. There's, I'm sleeping in like a hyperbaric That's chamber. What I'm, yeah. There's, you know, it's like all of the, like there's, it, you can't, you draw a line around technology at some point, but then everything upwind of that is also technology. And so you can't like disentangle it all. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was going to say is it's like you read old sports, but I just read open and it's like, you read about Andre Agassi training. It's like, okay, he trained a lot like crazy, but you're like these back then it's like these people weren't doing anything compared to what people are doing now with respect to coaches. And I, it's like nutrition still largely, uh, unknown, I would say, I, in terms of science. Yeah, I bucket all of that into the progression of technology, right? Like our understanding of what training should look like. I think I bucket into the technology camp because that's just added knowledge we didn't have back then. So if you gave an athlete 50 years ago the same training plan that someone had today, would they be just as good? I would say yes. You're shaking your head no, Sam. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going. So I, we disagree. Take the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll never also, know. That's the problem. But 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 I do think we should get what's Brian, what's his name? John's the guy who's Yeah. We should get him on the podcast, learn about what he's doing. Um I think there's probably some who interesting is, things. He's who is Nick, it? you sent me his video this morning. Guy oh, who's the blueprint doing, guy. Yeah. I think he might have a mental illness. I don't know. He's posting some crazy stuff. No, Sam. this is this is that it's like, that's what people always, they say, oh, I'm going to write this off because it's crazy. And then 50 years down the line, people are like, oh, maybe he was ahead of his time. Also, oh. I'll just throw, you know, we're really going over time here. Alan Cousins on Twitter. If you're an athlete, great follow, great data driven insights into training. All right. We'll see everyone next week for episode 25. Thanks, y'all. See you, everyone.